Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of A Republic to Keep. I'm your host, Liam Bauer, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. This week, we return to the U.S. Supreme Court for two cases being heard tomorrow, November 1st. These cases contest the Texas Heartbeat Act, a Texas state law that prohibits abortion after fetal heartbeat can be detected, which is approximately six weeks into pregnancy. But before our discussion, let's meet our panel. Joe? Hi, I'm uh, Joe Diamond. I'm a Marquette 2020 graduate and a 1L at the University of Illinois in Chicago Law School. And I'll be um, arguing in favor of the Heartbeat Act. Thank you, Joe. And Dave? I'm Dave. I'm a 2020 Marquette graduate, and I'm a middle school math teacher in Texas. Thank you, Dave. And Miranda? I'm Miranda. I'm a senior at Marquette. And, yeah, that would be more than that. But. <laughs> and Tommy? Hi, my name is Tommy. Oh. I'm a sophomore here at Marquette. Let's try the other side. No? Try to go again. Hi, my name is Tommy. Um, I'm a sophomore here at Marquette. Sorry, we're missing Tommy a little bit there, but Tommy is a sophomore here at Marquette. And he'll be in the discussion in just a second after the introduction. And if our listeners like our show today, they can follow it on Spotify Podcasts under the title A Republic to Keep. Also follow us on Twitter at Republic Number Two Keep to get updates and info about future shows. On January 22, 1973, the United States Supreme Court struck down a Texas law that outlawed all abortions with the exception to save the life of a mother. The justices ruled that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment implied a citizen's right to privacy. In this case, the Due Process Clause protects an individual's right to privacy and personal personal medical decisions. However, this right to privacy is balanced by a state's interest in protecting life. A trimester framework was thus established by the court in which a state can enforce no restrictions on abortions during the first trimester, can emplace some restrictions related to protecting a mother's health during the second trimester, and can prohibit all abortions in the third trimester. Later on in 1992, the court reaffirmed the individual's right to privacy established in Roe v. Wade, but replaced the trimester framework with a viability framework. This viability framework remains the standard of today. Now state legislatures cannot place an undue burden on a woman's trying to receive abortions before a fetus is deemed viable, or able to live outside of the womb on its own. The earliest bans on abortion a state is allowed to implement is at 20 weeks. In the last few years, a pro-life activist have mobilized to implement greater abortion restrictions in several states. This new effort has been motivated by the more conservative makeup of federal courts, and a 6-3 conservative majority on the United States Supreme Court. Most recently, on May 19, 2021, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed Senate Bill 8 into law, also known as the Texas Heartbeat Act. This law prohibits anyone in the state from assisting a woman in carrying out an abortion. Specifically, the law states that anyone who performs or induces an abortion on a woman or who knowingly engages in conduct that aids or abuts the performance of or inducements can be sued by anyone in the state who is not a state official. 
The person suing must pursue a minimum of $10,000 plus attorney's fees for each person they are filing a lawsuit against. This method of enforcement by private citizens sets the Texas law apart from other states, who have passed heartbeat laws in which the state was the enforcer. In the 12 other states in the past that have attempted to enforce heartbeat acts, a court preliminary injunction prevented the laws from going into effect because the law directly contradicted the precedent of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. However, the Texas law's unique structure means that an injunction is more difficult to obtain. In order to bring a case to a federal court, an individual or group must have what is called Article 3 standing, in which an injury has already occurred. However, a case can also be brought before a federal court if an individual or group sues a specific state official who is charged with carrying out an unconstitutional law before the law goes into effect. If successful, the court places a preliminary injunction on the law. This is a court order that prevents someone from beginning or continuing an action. In the past, heartbeat cases, a preliminary, in past heartbeat cases, the preliminary injunction was used to prevent the law from going into effect. In the case of the Texas law, it is unclear whether an injunction can be used since private citizens and not Texas state officials enforce the law. The plaintiff, an abortion clinic named Whole Woman's Health, sued Texas state judge Austin Reeves Jackson in order to receive a preliminary injunction and block the law from going into effect. However, the injunction request was denied by the Fifth Circuit, and further, the U.S. Supreme Court denied to block the law from going into effect on an emergency appeal in August. The law officially went into effect on September 1st. Nevertheless, the U.S. Supreme Court has expedited an official hearing of the case to tomorrow, November 1st. The court will also hear U.S. v. Texas, which is the U.S. Justice Department's challenge to the Texas law. Exactly one month after, on December 1st, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is a Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks. So, to start off our discussion, let's first look at two questions regarding the enforcement mechanisms of the Texas Heartbeat Act. One, is the use of private citizens adequate to meet the law's objectives? And two, is this use of private citizens constitutional? I'll start. So I don't know if it's effective per se. I just saw today there's been some articles about how abortions in Texas have been reduced by half, but that's only because people are just going out of state to get abortions. So I don't know how effective this really is. And I don't know if that's just because the law isn't effective itself or just because something like this would have to be more widespread for it to really make any sort of difference. Um, and then as far as the constitutionality of this mechanism of using private citizens, I don't agree with it, only because it's really easy to flip it in any other situation. So I'll give a quick shout out to Dr. Paul Nolet, who's teaching my constitutional law class right now. We were talking about this in class a month ago, whenever this, when this was just starting. And he was saying how if this would be flipped on the right, let, you could be sued $10,000 by your neighbors every time someone knew you had a gun, and that somehow wouldn't be an infringement on the Second Amendment rights where I would say it is. So I personally don't think abortion is a right, but that's a whole other topic. But assuming that abortion is a constitutional right, then this wouldn't be a good mechanism, I don't think, because I think that would be a dangerous precedent to set. 
So I actually could address uh, Miranda's point. I was actually reading an article from uh, Political earlier today citing that very exact uh, reasoning for why conservatives, specifically Chief Justice Roberts, would actually be against um, in favor of Texas because there is a very strong pre uh, precedent saying that if um, the justice were to rule in favor of Texas, where exactly would this end? And the same exact principle is applied for guns. So I just thought that was an interesting point Miranda brought up and an interesting point brought up by political earlier today. Um, I think, you know, the, the sort of bounty system that they place on um, individuals who help um, people access abortions, I, I agree with Miranda that it could set a, a strange precedent that could be turned around on conservatives, but I also think that in the past, um, the the parties in support of abortion have been able to um, obtain an injunction, injunction so easily on the topic that it's been difficult to get the Supreme Court to decide um, an issue which still very much is open for question in the United States, um, that issue being abortion. So I think that it is a clever way to sort of force the issue and prevent the courts from kicking the can down the road as they've been wanting to do over the last 50 years. I would say, though, in terms of an injunction, I mean, you can appeal an injunction. That has been done with the Dobbs case that we are, will see be heard on December 1st in front of the court. I think it's really about who is on the court and who is willing to let the issue come up to the Supreme Court. Uh, for those who don't know out there, if the Supreme Court is going to hear a case, there needs to be four justices out of the nine that agree to hear it. Once you get those four, your case comes up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, on average, um, accepts about 1% of cases that are appealed to it. So there's a very selective few that get it. And usually, Joe is right, that abortion has not been taken up as much because of the precedent of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Yeah, and I, I just think that because of the sort of two separate issues, one being the abortion issue and two being the um, method of enforcement, I think that it, it makes it more of an attractive case for the Supreme Court to take on because they'll be able to um, answer both questions with um, in one case. So it could be that the Supreme Court will hear this case and decide, um, you know, they'll reverse it in part and say that the method of enforcement isn't constitutional, but they might open up questions that um, would weaken the president of Roe v. Wade, which I think is ultimately what the writers of the bill want. I also think it's interesting. Um, Liam brought this up, the Planned Parenthood versus Casey case. Um, I believe that one took place in Pennsylvania, and mm -hmm. that one also kind of had like a two factors to it, um, that being like access to abortion and restrictions on abortion. So we're kind of seeing a similar thing where abortion might be upheld but more restrictions will also be like allowed. So it's kind of like they're always walking this strange line and they're not really creating any decisions. So I'm just not counting on any decisions being made from this case either. Well, it does look like when you see a lot of activists trying to push an issue to the Supreme Court, historically, eventually the Supreme Court will take it up and either make the narrow ruling or the more broad ruling. Um, probably the most famous yet infamous case was um, Sanford, sorry, uh, 
Dred Scott v. Sanford in 1954 that ruled that slavery was constitutional. That was overruled by the 14th Amendment, but that's just probably the most famous decision where public opinion and public activism push issues to the Supreme Court. It's a very risky play, though, because when you push something in the Supreme Court, you are relying on nine people who are not elected, in my opinion, shouldn't be elected if they're judges, but nine people who are unelected who will make a very who can make a very definitive ruling on a decision, and it could go either way. Now, it will be hard to say that this court would expand abortion rights, looking at how conservative the makeup is at this point. But you also don't know what the justices might rule in terms of narrow rulings. We've also seen conservative justices are much more likely to make narrow rulings. And in this particular case, they might just look at whether you're allowed to use the private enforcers rather than if they're looking at actually overturning Roe v. Wade. But, um, but, sorry. No, I just kind of wanted to get back to the central question for this first part of, well, I think the general consensus is this might not be a very constitutional way of doing this, the private enforcement, especially if precedent says that Roe v. Wade is the law of the land and that private medical decisions fall under the privacy implemented by the 14th Amendment. So looking at also, would this private enforcement, even in a hypothetical, would this private enforcement, if constitutional, be effective? Because I've also, I've also seen a lot of like abortion websites right now, like pro-life websites, that have tried to put out basically pages where you can put in who would be giving abortions. Kind of like a hotline almost, but on the web where you could put in if a doctor was giving an abortion illegally under the act, and a tip line, if you will. And it was flooded with false reports by pro-choice activists in order to make it basically an unworkable system. So I would, would this private enforcement be really tangible? Would it be workable? At the end of the day, it feels like more of a fear tactic than anything else. I mean... I don't see how this works in the real world. I mean, maybe Joe will have some insight on that as our law student, but I don't understand how it would work. Um, I think that with enough time um, for pro-life groups to kind of come up with a, um, a system of informing and stuff like that, it could make it, you know, accurate enough and so that, you know, engaging in abortions that are um, prohibited under the law would become so prohibitively expensive for these doctors, because it seems like if you could prove that he was, you know, um, that this doctor, this hypothetical doctor was um, performing these abortions, then it would be 10000 probably for, I'm not sure if it's for each abortion or, you know, because 10,000 is only the floor of it, right? Yeah, it's, it's so 10,000 floor for each instance. So I believe each abortion, uh, and they yeah. can do also more. Yeah, so so this doctor could be subject to liabilities in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, and all it really takes is one successful case for the um, these doctors to, you know, reconsider, um, you know, their, their practice of performing these abortions outside of the scope of the law. 
Um, so I do think, you know, in, in the short term, especially when this is a hot button issue, um, you know, you'll have activists from the other side who are trying to monkey wrench it. But I think all it really takes is one um, successful case in which the doctor is subject to liability in order to disincentivize other doctors from performing them. Um, but then, of course, this just relies, you know, very heavily on whether or not the Supreme Court allows for this law to go into effect or, or to stay in effect. I would just also think about the classic, like, pro-choice line that just because abortions are illegal or restricted doesn't mean they're not happening. They mm. might just be happening in more of a private area, a little bit more in, like, the dark market or, like, the black market. So I'm just, I think that this law is pushing it into that area, pushing people out of state, whatever it may be. I don't think that this is actually going to be limiting abortion in Texas too much. And Dave, what do you what are your thoughts on the constitutionality or the workableness of the private enforcement mechanism? So my opinion is very mixed on this. That's why I haven't really been saying much. I'm not I'm not too well informed on uh, um, this specific question. I could get into more detail on uh, the other questions you have planned for today, but the use of pri- uh, private citizens for enforcement um, enforcement mechanisms. I think you want to pa- uh, pass up another one. That's okay, Liam. Okay, sounds good. Well, I guess the general consensus is it in the long term, Joe. You seem like you were saying it could work once the pro-life activists got together and put up a more workable system, maybe more of an internet system between pro-life networks, not as public as the World Wide Web. Um, but also, I, I definitely agree with you, Tommy, that the fear of being sued will definitely preve- prevent the vast majority of any doctors from actually partaking in any abortions and probably will just say we're not doing any abortions at all because six weeks is a very short time span Many women will not even know they're pregnant by six-week mark, too, especially ones who are unplanned pregnancies and therefore are not really looking to see if they're pregnant on a regular basis as well. So I think it's really, and also there's the, the law is purposefully vague on who can be sued. It's anybody who aids in the bets. And many have said, well, then the Uber driver that takes you to the Planned Parenthood Center could get sued. Now, it's very unlikely, I think, looking at just court procedures that any judge would actually make an Uber driver pay $10,000 for taking someone to a Planned Parenthood. But the threat of that would probably scare a whole lot of Uber drivers who aren't really well-versed in court procedures. So I think the threat is the biggest thing here, and that would probably, more than anything— de facto and abortion in Texas with this law. But looking also, I guess, moving on past this question of the enforcement mechanisms in private citizens, uh, should the court abide by the precedents when this ca- these cases come up to it in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey? Or should the U.S. Supreme Court strike these rulings down to establish new precedent? So is it time to strike Roe v. Wade down a Planned Parenthood, either in full or in part? Or should there be a new formula for deciding what states can do to restrict abortions? Or should this precedent be kept as is? Should we still abide, abide by the 1992 viability formula? 
episode actually could jump in on this one. I think the average person, uh, to be blunt, is kind of in, is kind of stupid when it comes to the Supreme Court president. Just saying, I'm going to go on a whim and say that I don't think many people seem to understand how precedent actually works. And if you actually ask the average person, like, is a Roe v. Wade overturned? The correct answer is technically it is partially overturned in Casey because uh, with Roe, as you said earlier, earlier Liam, we had a trimester framework. framework with the Casey, we established the uh, undue burden process. So Roe is essentially partially overturned. We still have um, some abortion access in this country. But going back to your point on should we overturn this, uh, should we overturn this decision? I do not think it is a wise idea to overturn Casey, especially in our, uh, let's say, partisan environment. He is already, people have a very skewed concept on how uh, the court has decided how the Supreme Court justices decide cases. I think, I forgot where I was reading this, but there was one article I was reading earlier this week. Um, might have been from PBS or just might have been from Political or the Hill. But the article was saying uh, nowadays more Americans just believe that uh, justice, justices and judges just decide uh, cases based on their own political beliefs rather than uh, the legality or constitutionality of these cases. So in my opinion, it is not a wise idea to really overturn Casey because you're already going to have a very skewed uh, concept of how the court decides these cases, especially in an era when there are six uh, Republican appointed uh, six Republican appointed justices compared to only three Democratic appointed justices. Just my opinion. Um, you know, being being pro-life, I, I obviously don't agree with the um, decision in Roe v. Wade or in Casey. Um, but I will say that even from what I've read, and this is kind of hard to confirm because this is all sort of backroom chatter, but from what I've read, even the liberal justices on the Supreme Court um, have problems with Roe v. Wade and how it was decided. Um, if you read Roe v. Wade, it, it's one of those cases where it seems like the court has really made up their mind to legislate on the issue of abortion, and they kind of try to make a square peg fit into a round hole, particularly with the justification of the privacy right to privacy clause of the 14th Amendment. Um, the dissent on that case, I believe it's on that case, it might be a similar one, basically says that that is probably the weakest part um, that, you know, where you possibly could find some justification for abortion in the Constitution. That's one of the most vulnerable points to do that. Of course, a more conservative justice would look at that and say, hey, this was written in the 1860s. There is absolutely no chance that the intent of these um, framers of this um, amendment was to, you know, protect a woman's access to abortion. So I think that just just on its reasoning point of view, um, Roe v. Wade should be overturned um, just because I think it's a, it's a poorly reasoned case. And then obviously I think that it's a, um, a case that is – incorrectly decided morally but you know even even if i were pro-choice i would want a stronger precedent um to protect abortion than roe v wade which obviously you know has been so controversial and so open to criticism that now even 50 years later we're still talking about whether or not it should be overturned yeah i mean i'm our pro-choice person here i think today and although I 100% support Roe v. Wade, 
There needs to be a definitive answer on this topic because for too long we've been going back and forth just like Joe was saying. So we need to find the answer to it and just figure it out and allow abortion, at least in my opinion, because at the end of the day, I feel like our modern reasoning behind it is bodily autonomy more than the right to privacy. So I think something that's more incorporated legally with that reasoning would be a lot more powerful and a lot um, more stable of like legal reasoning for um, such like uh, future legal things. <laughs> I think responding to both Joe and Tommy, um, I read very briefly what the what the steps of reasoning were for the right to privacy. So this is, I'm not an expert in what this said, but from what I understood it was that it started with a woman um, having the right to privacy to have birth control with like her and her husband deciding together. And then that eventually snowballed into the right to an abortion without, um, without her husband, like just on her own. So I'm not totally sure I, I would agree with Joe that I don't think that's the strongest case for abortion in, in the 14th Amendment. And then um, another thing that I want to bring up that's interesting in Ruby Wade, in, in the actual written um, opinion, it says, I forget which section it says, it says this, but it admits that if personhood were to be defined as um, life beginning at conception and that being considered a person, then the entire argument for Roe v. Wade would, would fall apart. So that's, and that's interesting because you mentioned how um, the pro-choice argument is bodily autonomy, and obviously the pro-life argument is that it's not your body, it's the kid's body. Um, so I think that would probably be the point, not necessarily the reasoning behind abortion, but that I think that would have to be the question that's brought up is just like what even is life and when that starts. And then as far as that being decided and if this would be overturned, I'm not sure that these cases being heard tomorrow would be the ones to to start that conversation. I think it would actually be the Mississippi bill that's being heard in December because these two bills being heard tomorrow seem to be more administrative, if that makes sense. Whereas the one in the, the Mississippi case is actually um, challenging the viability aspect of Roe v. Wade and these precedents. And actually could jump in on this one. I think everyone's making uh, valid points. Miranda, I actually liked your point uh, when you allude to Griswold v. Connecticut, uh, 1965, a few moments ago. Uh, we were talking about uh, the Supreme Court, how the Supreme Court in a 72 decision talked about how married couples have a right to privacy. Uh, but the thing is, I don't think anyone's really addressing like this argument of the right to privacy because I'm sure many people who are politically aware are familiar with, so the average person probably doesn't know this. The word privacy is not mentioned once at all in the entire Constitution, not a single time. The whole concept of, of a right to privacy really isn't something direct. It's just something that uh, has been alluded to several times in several amendments. But nothing is really concrete about what exactly defines privacy with regard to the Constitution. What exactly uh, and how exactly does that apply when it comes to abortion rights in this country? But... Going back to what was said, uh, I believe it was, I forget if it was Joe or Tommy who made this uh, statement, but um, someone was talking about how Roe was actually, um, many of the liberal justices at the time were actually very hesitant on why exactly Roe was like ruled uh, in a specific manner. And that's actually something I don't think many people seem to understand. That's why when it comes to Casey, uh, 19 years after Roe was decided, you actually had um a 5-4 majority rather than a 7-2 mm -hmm. majority uh, as established in Roe, kind of essentially overturned part of uh, 
wrote uh, in favor of the undue burden standard because the trimester framework was literally legislating from the bench. And on top of that, the undue burden standard was much more realistic um, for how court really should apply a abortion procedure and abortion precedent in uh, the uh, then modern day America, if that makes sense. And I think the really to overturn part of what Ray and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, they kept the core of Roe v. Wade, the right to privacy and your own medical decisions. They took abortion as a medical procedure uh, rather than, I guess, a moral instrument. But looking also at the viability argument, I think they were trying to make it more scientific was the main thing there instead of the, I guess, quote-unquote legislation of the trimester framework. They were more so looking at something that was, I guess, based on science, looking at direct viability. I think the central argument of that was the child is still reliant, literally, for its life on the mother. Therefore, it is literally a part of the mother. And the mother is the one, then, who can make that decision on whether or not to do with her own body. And so I think that's the central argument of the viability framework, whether you agree with that or not. I know that's a very contentious view. But I think that's why they were really shifted that precedent in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Now, if you want to, if the Supreme Court was to make another formula, perhaps with uh, gestational age, meaning the age at which the fetus starts developing, then that can also be talked about, and that's about 15 weeks, which is the Mississippi bill. Uh, and I do agree with you, Miranda, about the case that will dis- really would decide if Roe v. Wade, the core precedent of Roe v. Wade, would be overturned, is probably the Dobbs case that's coming up December 31st. Because that, that was written to be up eventually in front of the Supreme Court. Because it directly goes against this uh, the Roe v. Wade precedent. Even the Fifth Circuit, which is largely the most conservative circuit of the 13, did, struck that down and placed a preliminary injunction because it said it did not b- abide by Supreme Court precedent, which is binding upon it. So if there is something about these two cases we'll see tomorrow, it's probably going to be looking at the private enforcement mechanism. If there's going to be something in about a month with Dobbs' case that's going to overturn Roe v. Wade, we're going to see that there. So I guess that's why I like to roll Dobbs into this. But also, looking at the penumbras, the shadows of the 14th Amendment, as they said in Roe v. Wade, I I would say that there is a right to privacy overall in that. And if you said that there is no right to privacy, there is a lot of Supreme Court precedent based on privacy, like the Griswold case about um, pl- family planning, essentially, but also Lawrence v. Texas in 2003, which struck down uh, Texas's quote-unquote anti-sodomy law, basically saying that um, gay sex was illegal in Texas. And there was the court ruled that there was a right to pr- intimacy, right to privacy, between two consenting adults in that circumstance. So if you're saying there's no right to privacy the 14th Amendment, then, and this is just one case, but then you are putting a lot of Supreme Court precedent in jeopardy and a lot of fundamental rights based on those rulings in jeopardy as well. Um, The corollary to that, Lee, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, Does anyone have a point I could go afterwards? Oh, no, no, you Um, can go ahead. Oh, yeah, sorry. To address your point, Liam, 
I wasn't uh, necessarily saying like if there's like nothing explicit about uh, a right to privacy in the Constitution, you can't really uh, talk about it. Uh, no justice can really talk about that. The point I was trying to make was just because you don't necessarily see something doesn't mean it's not necessarily there. So like mm-hmm. on a like scientific example, just because I can't see atoms doesn't mean like they don't exist. You know, that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah. Privacy is not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution. But it's very much implicitly there. Supreme Court precedent has uh, been built around uh, privacy. Like you mentioned, Lawrence v. Texas in 2003, uh, Griswold v. Connecticut in 1965, Roe v. Wade in 1972, so on and so forth. So I do think there is merit to some form of privacy, but nothing is established. So the question I would have to ask is where exactly would you define these parameters? I remember when um, then-Judge Anthony Kennedy of the Ninth Circuit was a confirmation hearings for the Supreme Court um, to be nominated for a justice. Uh, he uh, very much said, like, there um, is essentially, like, a certain threshold in which the government cannot interfere, like, with a private individual with regard to individual liberty. And he was saying that uh, at a certain point, government cannot interfere with what uh, is happening uh, within the individual confines uh, of a certain uh, individual or just a right to privacy or uh, any liberty regarding said person or what's in the Constitution. So at that point, you have to essentially ask yourself, what exactly is your limit and where exactly you're uh, driving this limit from? Are you deriving it from political, uh, from political facts, like English common law, like precedent from 17th century? Like where exactly you're deriving this from? That's what I think uh, needs to be asked because if you are, let's say, a much more liberal modern-day jurist, then you could say essentially like anything, whereas if you're seen as a more traditional jurist, you're going to look at much more like concrete facts that are that are like very much established in um, common law procedure. And getting back to yeah, you, I, I, yep, sorry, Joe. Oh, sorry, I agree with that. And and by the way, Liam, uh, the they're going to be here soon, so I'm going to have to jump off, but I'll just make this last point, if mm-hmm. that's okay. Yep. So, so regarding Roe v. Wade and, and the right to privacy, I would say that most pro-life people don't disagree that there is an implicit right to privacy in the Constitution. I think that they have a problem with them saying that you that, that right to privacy extends to an abortion because a pro-life person would look at an abortion after a certain point. I mean, it, it depends you know, how intense your pro-lifeness is, but they will basically look at an abortion as a murder. So, you know, the pro-life person would say, well, your right to privacy doesn't extend to, you know, your right to privacy while committing a murder. So I think that this basically all gets down. The essential question is the defining of personhood, which Roe v. Wade alludes to. Um, I would say that, you know, there's a lot more that we know now about fetal development um, in 2021 than we did in 1972. So I think that, you know, people on the pro-life side of the aisle think that it's worth you know, with this understanding that we have now, we we tend to think that, you know, we're owed a reexamination of the personhood standard. Not only, you know, obviously the trimester test was overruled in Casey, but also in the viability test. Um, people who are pro-life would basically say, like, well, you know, a newborn is uh, absolutely dependent on their mother for their livelihood or dependent on an outside force. You know, you can't just, like, leave a newborn and it's going to survive. You know what I know, you know what I mean? So I think that the the whole question before the Supreme Court and before society boils down to the personhood argument. And I think and I agree with um, Miranda that, you know, 
Mississippi's case has a lot more um, potential to address that question. But I would just say that I think that we as a society, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, deserve a clearer answer on the issue of personhood. Mm-hmm. And it, maybe there will come uh, you know, a delineation that seems logical to both sides that say, like, okay, after this point, then it's a person and you can't abort it. Um, and I think that that would be the best case scenario for the pro-life argument is if basically they could come to a reasonable point in which most parties will be happy with the result. And I don't think that the viability test is one that's going to um, satisfy a lot of people in 2021. And I like that you point out where like there has to be not necessarily consensus, but some sort of agreement by society. Well, and while the United States has really dealt with this specific issue in our courts, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. In fact, I would venture to say that most, at least industrialized nations, have decided this issue through legislature. And that has really made it so most nations have a much shorter cutoff of when abortions can happen. And practically all European countries, for instance, it's either 12 or 14 weeks. For instance, Republic of Ireland, it is 12 weeks. In the Fran- France, it is 14 weeks, and so on. While most nations in Europe allow abortions, they are mu- there's a much shorter cutoff because legislation has made this, I guess, compromise between the pro-life and pro-choice activists to make this abortion at a point where it is not, I guess, undue, where you can most women can still get it because most women, 90% of abortions happen before 12 weeks. However, there's also, it does not allow, which most people would are not in favor of allowing abortions up to nine months, but it's anywhere between the, I guess, conception to nine months is where that compromise must happen. And usually it's around 12 to 14 weeks in most nations other than the United States. So I guess that brings me to my third question, looking at how the U.S. should deal with this. Should we really be pushing this to the courts as we have done in the past? Or should this really be decided at our legislature? Um, well, I have um, a oh, you can go, Joe. Oh, sorry. I'll, I'll just and then I'll and then and then I'll leave. Um <laughs> Like I really got to go. But um, I, I agree with you, Liam. I think that a more European standard would make people happy. Um, you can, at least from my knowledge, the question of abortion isn't as hot topic, has, isn't as a hot button of an issue in Europe where it is around, you know, 10 to 12 weeks or something like that, um, particularly because I think that it was decided by the legislature mm-hmm. and therefore it has more of a democratic legitimacy as opposed to, um, you know, the Supreme Court, nine unelected judges. Um, setting what seems to be somewhat of an arbitrary standard um, for when personhood is established. Um, So I think that the United States, you know, it seems like a long shot with, you know, just the way that our politics is right now. But I think that a legislative um, solution on this would be preferable. But if not, I think that the Supreme Court should um, adopt a standard more in line with other Western countries on this issue, that being Um, you know, 10 to 12 weeks or something like that. I think that that would, in some sense, resolve the issue um, more so than simply, you know, adhering to the precedents of Roe v. Wade or Casey. Um, But thank you, Liam, for having me on. I got to go now. Thank you guys for the civil conversation. I enjoy this. I um, 
I'm looking forward to uh, listening to what you guys say after I've hopped off. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Always a pleasure. Okay. With that, any other uh, thoughts about legislature versus court? Actually, Joe, like, I guess a little fun fact that will, like, answer this question. Um, When Rose actually decided abortion really wasn't that hot button of an issue, the only... Mm-hmm. The way uh, abortion really became like this, like much of like an issue, for lack of a better word, really was like in the South, like civil rights. Everyone was starting to agree, like blacks and whites, uh, blacks and whites should be treated equally. So, people who were considered like more socially conservative that were in favor of segregation had to look at a new like hot button topic, and that topic became abortion. Because before this, abortion really was just seen as a medical procedure, and no one really like advocated for being pro-choice for life. After uh, school segregation started to end with Brown v. Board, you actually started to see people rally around a new cause that became abortion. So going to your question, so this week, uh, should this be decided between the legislature and the courts? In theory, this really should be decided by the legisl- legislature, but because of how partisan, how defining uh, abortion really is in uh, the United States, it's really going to be decided by the courts. But like I said earlier, it, it, this really should be ideally decided by the legislature because this um, it is too controversial of a topic to be decided by nine unelected judges. Because then at that point, you have a litmus test for judges and justices, as you've seen uh, through the Federalist Society, American Constitution Society, and how you've seen um, presidential candidates say like they're only going to nominate candidates that are either in favor of abortion rights or against abortion rights, so on and so forth. Yeah, when I was looking into this, I came across a really interesting article by The Atlantic, and they're pretty much saying that when we resort to our Supreme Court, our unelected justices, to create basically legislation for us, that is a deep, deep, deep systematic failure of our legislative system. So I think it's important that, like, we need to come to some sort of compromise in Congress because that's the only way to get a legitimate democratic answer to this issue. I agree with everyone. I mean, that's pretty cool that we all agree on that at least. But what I like, I agree. And my concern is that just because of how we have gotten to the point we're at now with the courts deciding all this for us, um, I feel like the only way for it to really go back to legislature is to overturn Roe v. Wade. And of course, that's the hill. That's the hill that people on both sides have decided to die on. Um, so, and I feel like. If the courts were to decide that, that would really hurt their legitimacy. And I don't think, even though we have a conservative court and everybody is super concerned that it'll be overturned, well, I think it's a possibility, obviously, but I think that would really hurt the court's legitimacy, to be honest, because that would completely piss off half the country. And, I mean, people don't technically have to follow what the courts do. They don't have any enforcement mechanism for their decisions. So I feel like that's something that they have to consider and because of that, I don't think it would happen. And I think it's going to have to stay in the courts. And it would be very hard to get it into the legislature for it to be decided that way, even though it really should be there. And, like, I mean, our nine Supreme Court justices, two of them, a sizable portion of the country feels should not have been put into that seat. So, I mean, best case scenario for the conservatives, it's like a 6v3 overturning decision. I mean, two of those six justices, like it brings them down to like a non-majority in the eyes of a, like, a lot, like a lot of Americans, really. 
So then it's very easy for a lot of governors or high-ranking Democrats to just look at this decision and be like, well, it's from an illegitimate court. And then we enter like some sort of democratic crisis because how do we like rectify that as a nation? And I, I, I will guess, say, yeah. oh yeah, sorry, Liam, you go on. No, you you go ahead. Um, no, yeah, I was just saying like um, that's like a very valid point. I'm I now don't really get much time to like read books, but um, uh, before like I became a teacher, I was reading a lot of books on like the fall of like democracies uh, around the world. And, like, a common theme was, like, once people uh, stop seeing, like, um, courts as, like, an independent body and start seeing that as, like, a political body that just decides cases on, like, a partisan basis, at that point, like, you really lost all hope for, like, your republic or democracy. Because at that point, once you lose the independent nature of the judiciary, like, it just, you've lost every uh, fiber of trust, like, uh, your citizens can have in the government. Because at that point, you do not have an independent check uh you know, looking uh, looking out for the average citizens, just, all right, the legislature, executive, and judicial branch all agree on this. There's no, like, uh, way to verify if there, is, if there are any unbiased checks. So that's what I think is a genuine concern. And uh, as I feel brought up, like, can, um, since uh, President Trump didn't win a popular vote, didn't win the popular vote, can, uh, can people genuinely say, like, these three justices were uh, are legitimate? that uh, will give us like a constitutional crisis. But yeah, Liam, what was your point? Sorry to interrupt. Oh no, I like that point. And I do, I do think it is a definite problem with democracy if you are pushing everything to your courts. And then it definitely becomes a zero-sum game because if a court makes one decision, that is the law of the land. And that's not really changing unless the court changes it itself. I mean, that's setting precedent right there. And I think even worse scenario would be the court sets that precedent and then it is not abided upon, because then your whole system is being undercut. So we also had to look at, I think, what might happen regarding these next decisions. I, From what I've seen, there are a lot of constitutional scholars saying, oh, Roe v. Wade is going to be gone in a couple months. From what I'm looking at, I think it's pretty murky right now. We are looking at justices, and particularly this court, that do like to make overall narrow rulings. Conservative justices like uh, Barrett, for instance, and Kavanaugh are really more in favor of those narrow rulings. The same with Gorsuch. Now, there are justices like, for instance, Thomas, who has been very explicit in his desire to overturn Roe v. Wade outright. But also, when you look at actual quotes and like hearings from the other justices, none of them have been explicit at all, even in their rulings on the bench about overturning Roe v. Wade or any desire to necessarily. They've also said, even uh, Amy Coby Barrett, who in her personal life has been very pro-life, on like her court proceedings, she has been, one, narrow in her rulings, and two, she has specifically stated she does not believe that Roe v. Wade, the core of Roe v. Wade, would be overturned, but is more open to those restrictions. Honestly, and I would like to hear your guys' opinions on this, I see in our actual system this these next I guess, cases that we're seeing in the next couple months, I think there's probably going to be a pretty narrow ruling that is a lot less, I guess, explosive than many would think looking at the Supreme Court. So, if I may, actually, sorry, like, hog, like, uh, the talking time, uh, but before uh, Justice Ginsburg passed away, I actually would have made the argument that 
Roe v. Wade and abortion, Planned Parenthood, Casey, all those cases were actually like more safer than ever before. Like the weird analogy I'd like to give is like for those of you who are inter- interested in Star Wars, I like to point to one scene uh, in Star Wars episode four, A New Hope, when um, Ben Kenobi and the Darth Vader are having a lightsaber battle, and uh, Ben Kenobi says like, "If you strike me down, I'll be more po- powerful than ever." Uh, with the um, Chief Justice Roberts essentially saying like, "I care deeply on how like the court is perceived in the country." If it really was the case where there were five Republican appointed justices and four Democratic appointed justices, I really do think in that instance, Chief Justice Roberts would have consistently sided with um, Democratic appointed justices on uh, abortion procedures and abortion rights for the sake of uh, judicial independence. With uh, Justice Coney Barrett um, now on the Supreme Court, I, I honestly think it's a wild card. I can't tell you definitively what will happen. However, I do think, for the most part, that Casey and Roe v. will technically still be around legally. But I do think that reality will be much more different in states like Mississippi and Texas, where technically, yes, abortion will be legal, but can your average person have access to an abortion? And I think at that point, no. Uh, the, re- uh, the reality and uh, legal uh, uh, legality won't align. That is my opinion. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised by a similar decision. Of Obviously, I don't like admitting that. But, I mean, looking at how the court is set up right now, I think that abortion access in states like Texas, Mississippi, like a lot of those like Bible Belt states, um, is definitely threatened right now. I think, I mean, in my mind, best-case scenario is that the, that like Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey wouldn't be overturned, but just that a lot of the questions surrounding them would be more defined and maybe more restrict. Like I'm sure the restrictions would probably go down a little bit. I mean, talk about viability, but I mean, a, a huge pro-life argument is that like we know so much more about viability. Pe- like you can, people are giving birth to their children earlier than ever before, and they're able to to stay alive and they're they're viable so i think that would be i don't know i guess this mississippi one is 15 weeks so maybe somewhere around there and then answering those questions like i know another big thing that we haven't really talked about is this idea of undue burden and health of the mother and something that i found interesting when i was doing some research is that health of the mother can pretty much mean almost anything, <laughs> uh, which I like mental health, emotional well-being, not even just like, oh, the mom is totally going to die. It can just be like, oh, I, I, I have depression and having this kid is going to, I don't know, like anything mm-hmm. like that is like, that's health of the mother. And that would be reason enough for her to have an abortion up to nine months. And I don't know, I feel like stuff like that might get rolled back a little bit too and be a little bit more specific than just this overall, ooh, or this just overall health of the mother that seems to mean anything. I think stuff like that will be, that would be my best case scenario, I guess. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point. We really have not talked about like abortions in case of rape, incest, or mm-hmm. health of the mother, um, which are obviously like some of the biggest topics that are controversial with the Texas heartbeat bill. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know how they can really tackle health of the mother without also like critically wounding their right to privacy, because otherwise we are really getting involved in their health care. And I think that is something that even Republicans don't want to play a big role in. 
I think it is interesting, though, because, I mean, and I do this too, I think we all want the Supreme Court to be more definitive in this answer. Mm -hmm. Well, at the same time, we want that also, it sounds like many Americans would like to be decided through the legislature. But if you give the Supreme Court more power to be more definitive, then there's less room for the legislature to say. If you give them all the power to the legislature, then the Supreme Court is basically silent on the issue, too. So it's, it is a catch-22, because one, also, if you give it to the legislature, you could have an Obamacare scenario, where Obamacare is in place, and then once Republicans take control of the chamber, they'll either completely undo it or chip away at it so much that it will be a skeleton of its former self. So in terms of continuity, perhaps it's better to go with the courts, because luckily in our system, we respect our courts, and we abide by those decisions, and that's, that, that is the law of the land. The very fact that this is everybody is really pointing towards the courts and having so much weight put on the courts for this, it shows how much the courts have in terms of power and how much we respect those decisions. Which is a good thing for a democracy, but maybe not a great thing for something that should perhaps be in the legislature. Um, so I think if we're going to look at what we want, we have to, if, if, if we do decide that, okay, we'll push this to the courts, which is, looks like we're doing because both sides have done that with this issue before, then we do need to say, okay, this is the court's decision, let's respect that. And before, in the past, like, for instance, as I said before, Dred Scott v. Sanford, that it was not the response, and the response was a civil war. And I'm not saying abortion is going to lead to a civil war. I don't think but, so. No, I, don't think, <laughs> I would hope not. Yeah. But if we're looking at that, we have to respect the court's decision, and we also have to reason that I think not only the citizens, but also politicians, both on the left and right, have to stop politicizing the court and saying we're going to put the youngest, most left, or most right leading justice we can find on this court so we can have a very conservative, very liberal justice for as long as possible. So I think there needs to be, if we're going to put these, my I think my main point here is if we are going to put these contentious issues up before a court that we all mutually agree we should respect, then we should also be pushing for our public officials to, instead of finding the most, I guess, politically palatable justices, making sure we have the most uh, seasoned and most experienced justices on the Supreme Court, regardless of if they're left, right, or center. Well said. <laughs> Thank you. Well, to your point, I would, I would make the case like what is the incentive if our um, if the American people are very much like polarized and partisan where you need to have at this point the same uh, party control of the Senate and presidency to really nominate uh, and confirm a justice. Because at this point, I don't really know how it's possible to really say, like, oh, like, here's a very centrist uh, jurist, and we nominate this person to the Supreme Court, and if the Senate is controlled by the opposition party, well, oh, sucks to suck. Like, that person is not going to get a confirmation hearing. Like, that's, that's the era we live in. I don't know if there really is an incentive in this day and age uh, to say, like, oh, well, you know what? Like, we need to have, like, more moderate jurists who are more experienced, who are in their 50s and 60s, not really in their early 40s. Hmm. I just, I don't know how we could really turn back from where we are now, the toothpaste is out of the tube at this point. You would need to have so much effort that I just don't think the American people are ready to have that conversation yet. Because we essentially are self-segregating ourselves into these camps or we live in our own bubble where 
realistically, like if you are a college educated person who lives in a city, there's a high chance you're a liberal and you spend time with other liberals compared to if you are a blue collar American in small town uh, America, you're going to spend time with a lot of conservatives. I just don't know how really you'd combine the two together to get this like ideal jurist. Cause at this point it's either you get your uh, essentially like left-wing jurist or right-wing jurist. But I will say there's a, Back when I was still in college, I feel old by saying that. Uh, back in my day. On, yeah, back in my day when the dinosaurs were still around. Um, I uh, wrote a, um, my final paper in philosophy of law on uh, this, like, very topic, on, like, judicial independence and, like, um, liberal and conservative jurists. I was actually, like, this, unsurprisingly, I learned that um, President Trump's uh, judicial nominees were – weren't center-right, they were considered to the right, whereas President Obama's, uh, President Obama and President uh, Bill Clinton's nominees were actually center-left, and George W. Bush's nominees to the courts were actually center-right. Mm-hmm. You actually do see a much more, like, quote-unquote extreme, like, trend, especially with the Federalist Society. From what I've uh, been gathering, uh, President Biden's nominees have been more so center-left rather than left-wing. But the question is, like, let's say if you did have Bernie Sanders win uh, the nomination, and within the presidency, would his uh, court nominees be center-left or they'd be more left-wing? That's a question that I just don't know. I feel like uh, they'd be much more left-wing and more progressive. But we just say uh, a younger candidate uh, leads the Democratic Party and they're much more progressive. Are they going to nominate center-left uh, judges or much more progressive justices? We just don't know. So I think that's like a whole, like a whole other issue that most Americans aren't ready to really talk about. That's all. I would be in favor of, uh, I know this might not be very popular, but I would still be in favor of reemplacing something perhaps like the filibuster back for Supreme Court nominations. And alongside that, maybe making a bipartisan commission that that is mandatory for each nomination as well. Maybe that would, I guess, there has to be things to force both sides to the table to appoint justices because there's... Republicans will appoint a far-leaning, Republic, like conservative justice, and then the Democrats are gonna now it looks like appoint much more far- farther left-leaning, younger, liberal justices. So I think we definitely had to push our legislatures to make these more bipartisan commissions, especially for questions of who's gonna be on the judiciary, who's gonna be an unelected judge making these key decisions for us. And that should be a much more, I guess, milquetoast process to do, to make, I think. I will say on an unrelated note, I know um, President Trump confirmed, I believe, 25% of like the federal judiciary and one-third of the Supreme Court. President Biden is currently at, is confirming judges at a faster rate than President Trump. I don't think many people are really talking about that. But the thing is, uh, with the midterms and how slim the margin is in the Senate, can Democrats uh, can Democrats really continuously like expand uh, or confirm judges onto the federal judiciary and possibly the Supreme Court? I I just don't know uh, how you could really reverse the trends um, that were said with the Federalist Society, with uh, then Majority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell and President Trump really just confirming judges at a rapid pace. I think that's realistically going to be the defining legacy of the Trump administration. Because if you really think about, I think 
the youngest judge uh, President Trump conferred was like in their mid 30s, maybe even early 30s, if I'm not mistaken. So like some federal judge uh, in Florida. So like if you think about it, that judge is going to be like serving for like at least like 40 to 50 years. So like this legacy is going to be pretty strong and be pretty durable for the foreseeable future. So let's see what happens in the next like 50 years. Like will um, uh, will uh, the judiciary look different? Will the federal society be like stronger than ever? Will the American constitutional society like you serve the federal society? I, these are questions that we have no definitive answer for. Well, uh, it's about time to wrap up. So do we have any final thoughts on Roe v. Wade judiciary? I think we just have to hope that um, the ju- these judges like stay to their mandate and remain impartial to the political pressures that are always going to be put on them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I will... Just one more time to defend. I do think that, call me too optimistic, I do think it's possible to come together and make some bipartisan motions too. And we are much more efficient, for instance, at putting in less salient federal judges that are not on the Supreme Court than we are on the Supreme Court. So I'm not saying let's make it less salient, but I am saying we had to put more pressure on these issues for some bipartisan support, or else we're going to risk having some big wins and big losses down the road, no matter what side you are on. So, you're not wrong. Yeah, sorry, Gone, Liam. So, yeah, that would be my point. Well, I was going to say, you're not wrong, actually. I know um, what's been happening with that Supreme Court uh, confirmation is have been like very tumultuous. Um, appeals court nominees have like been leaning towards more so um, like controversial now, but Leaning, uh, like it's leaning towards that era, but not really, not not as much as you think it would be compared to the Supreme Court. And discord nominees are relatively uh, uncontroversial. They're actually like discord nominees, like get overwhelmingly like bipartisan support. And I just searched up the federal judge. Uh, she was nominated at the age of 33, so she became a judge eight years after leaving law school. So uh, I hope that's um, ideal for some of you people who are in law school right now. You could become a judge at the age of 33. Good luck. Ambitious. <laughs> well, perhaps not the greatest way to espouse your ambition is to place someone who's 33 as a judge, but federally. The person did clerk for Justice Clarence Thomas, but still, that 33 is very young for a federal judge. Yeah. Well, looking at it, I think we had to just put more pressure on our elected officials to make more moderate decisions, especially on the bench, because if you're looking at an elected judge... It's best for everybody's, I would say, everybody's interest to make the most moderate decisions because when your party is in the minority, war in the majority, at least you're going to have a much more consistent bench in that way. And with that, um, and Dave, uh, well, were you saying one more? Th- I, I think I heard you saying one more thing about. Uh, the elected versus, well, sorry, the associate versus non-associate judges? Oh, no, I was just saying, um, for, I'm sure everyone knows by now that Supreme Court confirmation hearings are very, like, tumultuous and controversial now, no matter, like, who controls the party and uh, who controls the Senate, who controls um, the White House. But I was just saying, like, um, circuit court uh, nominees, they're not, they're still, they're not as controversial as Supreme Court nominees, but, like, 
for the most part, circuit court nominees are actually like done on a bipartisan basis. And then district court nominees like overwhelmingly like bipartisan unless that nominee really has like a very like let's say explicit uh, uh has explicit rhetoric and like written statements in the past but yes yeah, i do think though it's only a matter of time before those nominees get um the same treatment uh as supreme court nominees because i'm sure people were with part uh partisanship and polarization it spreads to every facet of american society like um before into the 1990s uh, the nationwide, we were starting to get much more partisan, but on a state and local basis, we were actually much more like bipartisan. Now that uh, has permeated to like every step and facet of American society to the point where you were essentially just look for the DRR next year state or state representative to like decide if you're going to vote for them, rather than seeing like oh, they get bipartisan bills done. So that is something uh, I just want to point out. It's not a question of if like this uh, will remain for. Federal judges, it's a question of when this will happen for uh, district court judges. That's all. Absolutely. And on that point, thank you for all the listeners out there. And remember, keep the republic.